Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. This is Episode 64. This is the continuation of our panel discussion following the Society of Catholic Scientists conference last week. This discussion took place on Sunday, June 9th, the afternoon following the conference. It was with Marissa Newton, philosophy instructor at the University of New England, and Jeffrey Woolard, a cancer researcher at the University of Toronto. The audio quality for this half is better uh, than last week's, not as good as next week's will be uh, when we start the interviews with, or the segments of the interview with Maureen Kondik. So this is still, the you may you may find sections where you want to scrub ahead a few minutes. Uh, don't, uh, don't be too fast to skip the whole thing. Uh, if you do end up skipping this episode, please don't skip next week. Um, I, have, I do apologize. Uh, I am still learning. This is still early in the process. Too many things I'm trying to do with my life right now. So back to the discussion with Jeffrey, Marissa, Bill, and I. So what do people think of Stephen uh, Nissen's talk? I thought it was fascinating. Five different types of humans that they all coexisted, right? Right. Yeah, that was interesting. It's fascinating. I had no idea. What that would be like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some error bars on exactly when they, those, you know, the band of existence. You know, it's, it's funny because I had always thought about when Neanderthal stopped existing, but I had never uh-huh. really thought about, well, they had to start somewhere. Right, right. So, like, they, some things start, like, they start, and then yeah. other things started much earlier, and then they right. stopped, but they might have gone on for longer, and it's, right, you know, right. It's, yeah. not a, it's not a linear thing, right? It's, it's, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's not even a tree, it's like a forest. Yeah. Right. Right. right, and there's interbreeding of the dense. I mean, I followed some of the stuff in National Geographic, yeah. but like there was what is it, uh, Homo Luzonensis from the Philippines? Yes. Oh, yes. Like this summer, like yes. I haven't seen that. I haven't right. seen that yet either. Right. The exactly. Denisovians are very new too, right? Just yeah, a few right. years. Yeah, it's this decade. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been amazing what they've discovered, and I feel like the dates keep keep getting pushed back earlier and earlier for well, I mean, the earliest. That, and that's that's the nature of. Well, geological, but specifically fossil paleontological research, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can have false positives. We can have things that oh, it turns out it wasn't actually that old, or you know, it isn't actually this thing that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. But mostly, we have false negatives. Mm-hmm. We haven't found it yet. Right. We don't know. We don't know. Well, we don't know. Right. 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 <laughs> and yeah, and so and yeah, that's the thing. We 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 can go all the way back to uh, I forget which scholar the 50s was, yeah, there's really just three stages. There's this early species, and there's Homo erectus, and there's us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's nice in the 50s when you don't have anywhere near the data. Right. Uh, Picture uh, that we're all used to in our anatomy books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, oh, that. Yeah. Gradually getting upright, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. He kind of set that myth to rest. I also, I was curious what you guys got out of that in terms of the um, sort of the end of Neanderthal existence. So there was interbreeding of humans in Europe, and then was there an actual time where they just died off? Is that pretty clear? See, that's... I don't think it's clear at all. Well, because couldn't they just find some other specimen that was 10,000 years, 5,000 years, a little bit above? Like, how do you have have data that says everything all that? I mean, you could maybe do some stuff with... uh, the areas of DNA mm-hmm. and how they maybe drift and get estimates, but that just would have to do with when interbreeding would have stopped and for this specific group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. There's no way to prove that they all died at this specific time. Right. Yeah, yeah that's very difficult to do. That's mm-hmm. notoriously difficult to do for a land vertebrate. 
Right. You know, it's, right. it's much easier if you're dealing with a marine invertebrate where you can bury them immediately, and mm. you know you have some reason to believe you have a fairly accurate statistics on their pres on their. I mean, fairly consistent preservation, and therefore, if you take a section of rock, uh, you'll okay. find enough of them to get your statistics up to the point yeah. where you consider them reliable. Mm-hmm. There's no way that's the case for Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. just no way. Still a mystery in a way, and their larger brains that he was talking about. Right. That was interesting. Just how static. Right. That was what caught me. Those lack of creativity. Yes, for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not changing, not optimizing, not getting a little bit better. It seems like language was really the point at which that changed for most of us. Words are the technical, natural knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't really get into, but I think is, is clearly there um, is the fact that, you know, language changes our brain. Well, that was mm. in one of the talks, like, I think it was actually, I forget which talk, but words was in the middle of the slide, and it said, you know, it changes our brains, but it also allows us, language also allows us to reach out into the world. Yeah, wasn't that his talk? That was. It was. I thought he had a slide like that, but maybe that's not the exact one you're you're speaking of. Hmm. I, whoever was talking about language um, was saying that that it changes our brains. Well, I mean, if you don't learn concepts. language, all sorts of terrible if something things don't happen. happen. And you don't yeah. learn language, then mm-hmm. you get in a way sort of. I mean, you have some plasticity, but a lot gets. It's not unlimited plasticity. Right, no, right. No. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Windows, windows close mm-hmm. um, if you don't get that stimulation at certain points. Yeah, but, I mean, he gave us his conclusions. I'm, I'm really curious, like, how he speculates about these things. What fields is he drawing from mm-hmm. to get his ideas, mm-hmm. to get these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, I mean... Very interdisciplinary and a bit from linguistics. Right, linguistic and, psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to read quite widely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. I know there's, that's a theory and philosophy of language that, that you can't have concepts without language. So that language actually gives you the capacity for concepts. And even, even say, a baby who um, is crying and doesn't really know exactly why it's crying can't fully experience the emotions of, say, sadness or uh, anger or uh, whatever else they might be crying over until they have the word right until they have the language for it and then they can sort it out based on so i think language is primary but that's a big that's a big discussion still yeah in a way concept yeah in a way marie george in the question period answered a bit about this that um like i asked this question about the the evolutionary roots of our emotional behavior of um our ability to communicate with each other and and that spark mm-hmm. where I can relate to God, mm-hmm. my, my spiritual capacity, mm-hmm. the image of God, and uh, and she reminded me of you know that when I'm experiencing emotion, like I'm conceptualizing it. Mm-hmm. I am not just mm-hmm. it's not just it's reflexive. Uh, yeah, I think about my feelings. I also feel about my thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's so intertwined in us yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We can't so really imagine, like Thomas Nagel said, we can't really imagine what it's like to be a bat. Right. You know what it would be like for me to be a bat. But not for right. that to be the bat. Yeah, yeah the what bat. that would be. You know, <laughs> yeah. Take care. Yeah. Right. What, it would be, what it would be like to be those people. I mean, I have, who did I hear that from recently? That there are people who have a fourth kind of cone and therefore are receptive to ultraviolet. Where's oh. that going? What's yeah. that like? 
mm. in this mortal life for sure. I am not going to find out. Right. Not, I don't know what it's like to have four color. I just don't, and I won't. Do they get cancer? I'm kind of sad about that. I have no idea. I hope they don't get eye cancer. Well, you can you can uh, you can use some microscopes and do, do different channels, and you can imagine. Yeah, wow. you can get molecules color, like you know, trying to yeah, and maybe we'll find out. You know, maybe eventually those people will be studied to the point where we find out that the chemical pathway activates this, and boy, the neural activity looks exactly like. Mm, some mixture of you know there you know, who knows what it could be and it, you know, it might not be that different but yeah but that subjective dimension of personhood that's something that but how could you yeah there's going there is well, it sure seems like there's a divide you could finally mm-hmm. a frontier you could not finally cross to be mm-hmm. like I just don't know right what their subjective experience right. is yeah the inner life I mean that's something computers will never have right so yeah. I mean, no one really went there that much in artificial intelligence. An I, opening letter by uh, the Cardinal. Mm. He mentioned some things about artificial intelligence, about technology. But I was hoping there'd be more. It was maybe it didn't came up more over the, meals, but it didn't come up in a. Did someone pose the question, Marie George, yeah. if you had a machine that could replicate like everything, right? Every neural connection. Who 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 oh, was yes. the field? Who was part of that question? You could, if you could re- replicate all however many billion neurons and however many quadrillion connections between them, mm-hmm. um, how could you tell the difference? What would, would that would that thing have human consciousness? Mm-hmm. How could you tell? I mean, that's obviously that'd be a hilariously thorny philosophical question that I'm sure people have already tried to tangle with. Well, well, wait, that's what the organoid do what talk was getting at. The what the mm-hmm. organoid talk. Yeah, brain. Yeah, in mm-hmm. sense, is it the made in the image true. of man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. We're not there yet, right? But yeah. I mean, in that case, at How least it's using parts of the human brain. But this is a, a machine that we're speculating about that yeah. has the connections that yeah. has a similar structure to the neural pathways. I think the answer is it wouldn't have consciousness. Be hard to believe. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, the people who are already arguing whether the machines that we have have some kind of consciousness, I just, I just have to rest my head against something for a while because I just, like, don't see the reason to believe any. Well, they can't answer Nagel usually. They don't, they can't usually answer Nagel or the Chinese room argument or any of those things or the hard problem of consciousness. Like, you know, Mary's room, that one with the color red where Mary is very intelligent human who's been locked in a room her whole life and people have told her all the scientific things she needs to know about the color red or all the empirical facts about the color red but when she she's never seen anything red but she's never seen anything red so when she comes out and she sees something red does she find out something new and most people would say yeah she does of course she does yeah yeah so see it's the experience that the personal experience that's reflective there were some people doing machine learning in the posters Oh really? Text. Yeah. See that. Natural language processing. Ah, oh, I should have read those. Maybe yeah. next year. Yeah. <laughs> I was walking around too much, but it's an interesting topic that I was actually hoping they'd touch on a little bit more. So maybe in a future conference. Yeah, I mean that's that's the beautiful thing is that uh, we're not going to get it all done in a in a year, obviously. Right, gives us a reason to get back together again. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it could be more like, well, where should we where should we go? Like, what? How? Should we be relating to the technology we make? How should we be relating to mm-hmm. the 
you know, all this technology. There's a whole field of like uh, human machine interactions, right? hmm. even developing programming in, setting up causal language, causal ways of interacting hmm. with machines. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're in the military and you're search and rescue and you have a machine support, you know, for search and rescue. And, right. And you're like, go, you know, turn left here, go over this mountain and you're in the helicopter. Go here, you're yeah. go there, go these templates. Well, why? You want to know why? Right. What's the reason? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trust this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a good decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The computer could be programmed to ask why, but not to care about why. Right. Yeah. It's always a projection of yourself, the programmer, the programmers right. into their machine. I mean, that's they can't. The machine can't bootstrap itself into existence. And with with that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. There will always be this connection to the original programmers, even if you have this hypothetical world where robots have been building robots for centuries and the last humans died 400 years ago. Yeah, I think there's lots of like more down-to-earth, non-science fiction questions that are probably more interesting to discuss yeah. that are maybe less speculative, but you, they have some meat to them and you can make them into mm-hmm. research programs and get working. Mm-hmm. Like, what type yeah. of questions would you... Like, I mean, the Department of Defense in the States or maybe yeah. DARPA is, like, heavily investing in, well, how do how do humans communicate with each other uh-huh. in certain situations to develop a language to mm-hmm. move forward in mm-hmm. ambiguity, mm-hmm. Uh, to negotiate the meaning of terms? Mm-hmm. To, so how should I interact with this chatbot type thing right. to recommend how to proceed in some disaster situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Another I would say you know, medical diagnosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are you saying that person has cancer in this type of cancer? Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. It can't just be only presenting, you know, here's um, here's patterns, here's patterns, here's it has to be in the way that I interact with and interpret the world, which mm-hmm. is the causes. Hmm. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. One thing that um, I, I gathered from this conference was that yes, all of these current and future issues have to be discussed and tackled with um, research programs. But I wouldn't, as they say, we shouldn't trust everything to the experts. Um, <laughs> they, uh, that uh, yes, let's get the Department of Defense, DARPA, and all of these uh, organizations leading um, uh, research uh, programs, but. Is there something that we can do to add an, add the extra dimension that thrived here, namely just getting normal folks, lay people, non-scientists, non-philosophers, but people who, who are hungry for that both, both kinds of insights? Well, it's the funnest people to try to explain things to, because if you mm-hmm. can't do it, mm-hmm. then are you just, you the person's really not getting convinced. You're like, well, maybe a... Maybe I actually don't know. Right. Maybe, Maybe you know, I'm just emotionally comfortable with this thing, but right. I actually don't. I, right. I, I haven't got it. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That's that's really important. It's that's true. a litmus test. It's true. That's what's fun about teaching undergraduates at a community college too. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're you ready to. to or, you have to boil it down to something or, digestible. Or even upper level yeah. undergraduate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's that scene in Margin Call. This is about the stock exchange. Ooh, yeah. yeah, I like that. Where where this is rocket scientist that's in finance now. He's like the head honcho. Mm. Explain things to me like you would your grandmother, or just this 
a dog. A golden retriever. Uh, <laughs> like he's just, that's funny. He's the one person that's, you know, making all these calls that actually understands right. nothing. Right. Uh, so he's just like a right. person, business guy, snap decisions. But, yeah. Uh, he's not a, yeah, he's not a, Expert. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. It's mm-hmm. more sign that the emperor has no clothes type of situation. <laughs> right. And being a good teacher is different from being a good researcher or writer. Or it definitely writer. is. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's. I did get an awful lot. I understand a great deal more about the things that I taught. Uh, even even the ones that I had actually taken before, <laughs> let alone economic geology, but that's another story. Um, yeah, I mean, having having to explain it and having to satisfy myself that I was actually giving sufficient reasons for what I was saying, mm-hmm. I had never mm-hmm. forced myself to articulate right. it before. Right. Yeah. You your brain fills in a lot of gaps for you when you're not saying things out loud. And then when you start to say them out loud and teach them, you realize, oh, there was a gap there. I assumed people would know. That yeah. I meant this, or right. yeah, or that I think this way. But right, it's yeah. it's a good test of like, do I have solid reasons for this yeah. line of thinking, yeah. or do I know much about the opposite point of view from right. the things I take for granted, the standards right. and perspectives mm-hmm. I take for granted? Mm-hmm. A lot of folks, including scientists, yeah. I was hearing to this weekend, right. a lot of a lot of them have to admit that. Uh, you know, they're experts in the science, right. but not necessarily experts in both sides of that scientific debate, right. necessarily. Right. And it's mm-hmm. that's humbling, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. but a, a necessary kind of step toward more conversation, more research, mm-hmm. and more solutions, real solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And in the world that we live in, I mean, we have to, we have to be humble. We can't, you know, there are no longer polymaths. Who can you know master? Who can be at the edge yeah. of of multiple? I mean, there are people who are just as flexible as a Renaissance polymath was, but that means that they know three or four subdisciplines of biochemistry. Yeah, one of the guys in my student residence yeah. is uh, studying chemistry. He's from France. Yeah, and uh, and he he's like the last guy. Prof told him, "Look, if you want to." solve the problems that people solved 150 years or 200 years ago when they worked alone that yeah. work alone but if you want to solve the problems that are open today right you work in teams yeah yes. those people those people are, those problems have been solved the, right the guy with the blackboard or the piece of paper problems have been solved right yeah <laughs> well I, I think I think I've heard more than once that Poincaré around the turn of the last century was the last guy who contributed significant things to all branches of mathematics hmm. but you just can't do it anymore hmm. you just can't get to that to the edge of all four of those and make any but contributions it's too much yeah there's the whiteboard effect it's it's pleasant to be at the whiteboard with people yeah. talking mm-hmm. writing things out working it out it yeah. is then there's that yeah, yeah. things yeah. come to mind that yeah. for me it wouldn't it would not have right if you alone. only had your own mind to bounce things off afterwards any time to lock it down to work it out to read yeah. to but there's a synergy there that comes with being at the poster, people give you references. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Collaboration, I yeah. think, is so important. I wish there was more of it in academic jobs. You know, I wish that yeah. there was more collaboration. Yeah. We have a little group at, at UNE. We get together. We have a reading group. But I, I'd like to see even more collaboration between the disciplines, like the you know biology and philosophy, physics and philosophy. 
Maybe I'm biased yeah. toward philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> I asked uh, uh, a PhD student that's a year ahead of me in a same area, different group. I asked her, so what do you think, what would make you more creative? Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And she said, uh, there's one thing you could do to be more creative. What do you think you would do to move your project forward? She'd talk to more people mm-hmm. about my stuff. Mm-hmm. Basically so true. just explain to them That's how what we I'm are. doing. And yeah. Keep, there's a lot of people out there. That's how we're structured. Like one of the talks is talking about how relation is at the basis of personhood. And that's how we're structured to be in relation to others. That's where our inspiration comes from. I mean, on a really basic level, we'd probably have no inspiration if we didn't relate to anything, you know? Um, I love that uh, definition, getting that definition of personhood, mm-hmm. by the way. Relation. It was a nice capstone to the conference. It came late in the game, but yeah. um, it, it's, it seems like one of those words that's kind of dying out yeah. in everyday conversation, mm-hmm. but it's still at the essence of so many discussions. And the idea that, you know, to be a person is to be in relation. Right. And in relation with relation. each other and with God. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's very compelling, and it presents you with a kind of responsibility mm-hmm. to the other person mm-hmm. uh, because you're in relation mm-hmm. with him, yeah. and they're in relationship with God just as you are. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, yeah, that that's a you know a galvanizing mm-hmm. sense of accountability mm-hmm. that I don't think is commonplace in our culture nowadays. Well, and, and because research can be kind of individualistic, not maybe right. among our friends, but among academia, you know, academics at large, uh, we can forget like the value of collaboration, the value of other people's ideas. Yeah. 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 That's uh, somebody was very frank about when you see them as competitors. Right. You know, to right. a degree, that's true. Because some, some part of that's inevitable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But competing with people you see every day. Yeah, within your own team, so point. close. Yeah. There's something stifling about that. Well, that yeah. actually shuts mm-hmm. off. Doesn't yeah. doesn't it's give you a little bit boost to not rest on your laurels right. against the, right. There's that group across the world, and there's our group. Right. That we have. Right. It's something that uh, is a bit toxic. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. You want to open up a human person, not shut them down. No, yeah. and you have to. Supervisors have to know how to organize teams well. Yes. Make projects, uh, have synergies, yeah. allow people to take ownership. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, there's certainly not training for that, to my <laughs> in my experience, um, in science. There's so many things that we seem to be expected to do that we're not, we're not trained for. And of course, you know, not everything has to be done by formal training, probably a minority of things in human life can ever be done by, with some sort of formal training, but it is, it is. You don't think about it, at least in my experience out in, out in the world, out in popular culture. I mean, certainly growing up in the middle of nowhere in Indiana with, you know, knowing no one who did this with them, just relying on a sort of genericized public image of scientist, that thought that you have to be, that you have to have any people skills at all, doesn't, is not part of that image. Right, right. So, and yet it's, it's, it's crucial. Mm-hmm. It really is crucial. Well, when you think of relation and like the you know the Trinity exists like as relation, like the right, that's right. of the Trinity. That's the model in mm-hmm. relation to each other. That's how we define them. And then um, I know the guy that I'm interested in that I 
present a little bit on this weekend was Max Shaler and just how his definition of the person was as this center of action that's completely non-objectifiable. So when we say, you know, the human being, of course, part of that is the material being, but then as part of the human being, he, he had this element called spirit, which is this non-objectifiable uh, center of action. He said the person can only exist like in and through the execution of their acts. Mm. And that's also the only way you can know them. So I guess that's why our actions, you know, so quickly shape us in terms of our personhood. But, um, but that's not to deny the material aspects that make all of those acts possible. Uh, yeah, it's the... It's not the ghost of the machine. It's right. The machine. right. It's the machine and the ghost. That yes. was probably that was one of my favorite parts. That's why you like Connor Cunningham. That's why I like Connor, <laughs> Connor Cunningham. The think machine of and the ghost. Well, he's yeah. a phenomenologist. I, I listened to his talk on YouTube about uh, Husserl last night. So I know yeah. he's a phenomenologist, and I think he has a little section on Max Shaler. Yeah. But I may have dreamed that. <laughs> I'm not sure. He said tripartite anthropology yesterday, and I got really excited. But right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's good that things that excite us. Which is a, yeah, that's Shaler's anthropology. I told so him we'll he see. was like a cross knowledge. between D.K. Chesterton and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> it's true. Right? Yeah. Right. It's true. He has like the wonder. He's got the, but Chesterton. then he said, when I get on my knees, <laughs> yeah, right. right. Do I get on my knees? I can't even do it. He's got a Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was also very tell. much, I don't know, a, a different generation uh, experience, but the movie Network with uh, the anchorman, Howard Beale. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw the movie no, Network. No. Uh, mm. The Mad Prophet of the Airwaves uh, was his nickname. And uh, he's the man who, in plot, uh, uh, gets everybody to get up and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, mm. That's a popular uh, <laughs> no, movie scene. And uh, uh, I think that uh, Connor would be able to get everybody to uh, rise yeah. up and yeah. say, uh, said, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I love God. Gosh right. darn it. Right, yes. right. Uh, yeah. Yes, I'm not going to put up with all of this non-God right. stuff. <laughs> well, he told us that all of us are basically already atheists from the beginning because we're asking the question, how does the soul, like, fit? In, inside uh, the body, how does it exist with the body, along with the body, outside the body? He's saying that's not the primary thing. The primary thing is spirit. The primary thing is soul. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, I guess, how the body kind of like makes that, brings that to light. But um, I like that he reversed our dualistic anthropology. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was certainly massaging my forehead for a while. There's no such thing as matter. Why right. do you think you can't prove that there's such a thing as matter? There's no good reason to believe there's such a thing as matter. Okay. Right. Well, when you <laughs> said you can't prove the existence of other bodies, I was really trying on that one to figure out if he meant something along the lines of just this, like, um, Cart, not Cartesian, but a Kantian worldview where yeah. we can't know the noumenal world. Right. Or if he meant that bodies as unified things appear to us and yet as a body we don't we, we've never been inside someone else's you know yeah. body in terms of their subjective yeah. existence He's like so a we prophet. don't always right that's right yeah. 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 for a while right. prophecy fulfills right. 
So Second Millennium is brought to you by me, Paul Geesting, and by Bill Schmidt. Find more of Bill's work at onwordword.net. If you enjoyed this episode, or it made you think, come on over to That So Second Millennium's Facebook page and leave a comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you.